On September 15th, the Palestinian group Hamas announced a return to Syria. For years, they had rejected the brutal Assad regime and in 2012 had even offered support to the revolution that sought to push him from office. The announcement by Hamas is the latest from a region that is slowly readjusting. Seeing a Syria that will continue to be ruled by the Assad regime and balancing this with their own geopolitical ambitions. This week, why are the likes of Hamas and Turkey moving back to Syria? And what does this mean for the revolution and those that continue to struggle for a life free from cruel and barbaric control? My name is Hugo Goodridge. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. Hamas didn't shout their decision to normalise relations with the Assad regime from the rooftops. Rather, they chose to slip it in at the end of a statement that was condemning Israeli airstrikes in Syria. The very last sentence of their statement read, Hamas confirms that it goes ahead with its decision to restore ties with the Syrian Arab Republic to serve the interests of the Arab and Islamic Ummah, above all the Palestinian cause especially in light of the escalating regional and international developments concerning the Palestinian cause. Serving the interests of the Palestinian cause all sound pretty good, but the reality of the decision may point more to the balance within Hamas shifting. You had a division since 2012 between the military branch that wanted a more neutral position and maintaining very good relationship with uh, Iran. This is Joseph Daher lecturer at the European University Institute and the author of Syria After the Uprisings, The Political Economy of State Resilience. Uh, and Syria being in the, in the background, knowing that if they cut the relationship with Syria, they would weaken the relationship with Iran. And at that time, obviously, the Hamas political leadership led by Khalid Mish'al saw an opportunity to come closer to other, say, supporters or states close to, to Hamas, especially Turkey and Qatar. And it was a period where the, you had the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood as well in Egypt it, uh, with Morsi coming to the presidency, etc. And in the past few years, we've seen that uh, many political geopolitical changes and internal uh, changes within the Hamas leadership are pushing Hamas back closer to Iran and therefore to a close ally of Iran, Syria. In simple terms, one could split Hamas between two leadership groups, the political leadership and the military leadership, both integral parts of Hamas, but who can also pull in different directions. At the outbreak of the revolution, the political leadership led the way, and Hamas favoured the struggle for democracy in Syria. In February 2012, Ismail Haniye, who would later go on to become the chairman of the Hamas political bureau, addressed cheering crowds at the Al-Azhar Mosque in Cairo. I salute the heroic Syrian people who are striving for freedom, democracy and reform, he told the crowds. Since that speech, the region has been transformed, in part by events in Syria and the wider Arab Spring, in addition to other changes. And during this time, the military leadership in Hamas moved to the forefront of the organisation, 
The military leadership now seeks to cement a closer relationship with Iran, Syria's strongest regional partner. The price of this relationship with Iran was seen in the recent statement on normalization. So really, I think we need to see Hamas official rapprochement with its latest statement a few days ago towards Syria in consideration of these various changes, geopolitical changes in the region, as well as the process of uh, leadership of Hamas closer to the military um, branch, Fatah uh, al-Qassam, which always wanted to maintain a closer relationship with Iran because Iran has been the only country able to provide uh, Hamas with weapons and significant amount of funds. The military wing of Hamas will certainly enjoy the arms and money that come from Iran. But the political wing of Hamas does remain, and all the money and arms in the world will do little to heal the collective wounds of the Palestinian people suffered in Syria that reverberated in Gaza. The fact of normalizing with the same regime will not satisfy the political leadership that was close to Khaled Mishal. That's Khaled Mishal, former Hamas leader and founding member of its Politburo. And section of the, the Hamas uh, leadership that want to maintain a more balanced re- relationship between Turkey and Qatar on one side and Iran on the other. Secondly, uh, whereas uh, Hamas answered to some you know, sectors of its popular base in 2012 regarding the support to the Syrian revolution, which was very popular among Palestinians and still is, especially among uh, sectors of the, the, the Hamas uh, popular base, this is not at all welcome by uh, Hamas popular base. Some might understanding for realist, pragmatic reason, but otherwise there's still a, a wide support among Palestinian population and especially among the, the popular base of Hamas towards the, the same revolution and considering the same regime as criminal. Syria has paid a heavy toll since the revolution erupted in 2011. It is estimated that half a million people have been killed in the conflict and the Palestinian community in Syria have not escaped the horrors. The Action Group for Palestinians of Syria have reported that over 4,000 Palestinians are believed to have been killed in Syria. Furthermore, they documented the death of 638 Palestinians under torture. 332 remain missing to this day. Events in Syria, such as the fierce fighting in the Palestinian Yamuk refugee camp near Damascus and the mass displacement that followed, have become seared into the Palestinians' public consciousness. The leadership, on the other hand... Uh, The crimes committed by the Syrian regime have been forgotten on the table of political pragmatism or realism and in favour of kind of geostrategic coalition, supporting the political parties, whether being Fatah or Hamas, rather than any strategy to liberate, or at least to have a strategy thinking about the liberation of the Palestinians, defending their interests. In this perspective, there's a whole you know, story for the past 40 years of Palestinian political leaderships from the left, from the PFLP to Hamas, collaborating with authoritarian regimes in the region, from Gulf Monarchies, Turkey, Iran, uh, Syrian regime, Saddam Hussein, etc. Even if the political and military leadership across Palestine have forgotten the people of Palestine have not been so quick to forget. We've seen this in the past few years when we uh, Hamas had put, you know, uh, billboards in memory of the killing of uh, 
Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Pastoran, it was ripped out and uh, attacked by Hamas and supporters of Hamas or close to Hamas and section of the population of Gaza. When these baseballs were put on in Gaza, they were completely ripped off and attacked because Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Pastoran, was considered the butcher of Aleppo and more generally of the Syrians. So this will definitely not pass well with sections even of Hamas uh, popular base, section of the, the, the political leadership, and will be seen as uh, another Palestinian political party passing its coalition's interest instead of you know, the interest of the population of the reason or even the, the Palestinians. While Hamas controls Gaza, they do not control Palestine. In the West Bank, Fatah have their own history with the Assad regime. Regarding Fatah, what is interesting, when Hamas was stepping away, if you want, from its relationship with Syria, Fatah came back closer to Damascus and actually came back. And you had events jointly organized by Fatah and the Syrian regime in the past few years within Damascus. So Fatah will not, I think, comment on the rapprochement between Hamas and the Syrian regime because Fatah basically have been in a process of rapprochement in the past five, six, seven years uh, with Damascus and the Syrian regime. Hamas was the most recent of the big regional players to announce normalisation with the Assad regime. But it has been Turkey's movements that have sparked the most intrigue. It all started with Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Cavusoglu, who in August, just as Turkey was threatening to launch another assault in northern Syria, called for a reconciliation between the Assad regime and the Syrian opposition. It was certainly a sideways move for Turkish foreign policy, which in recent years have been the main supporter and material backer of the Syrian opposition. In opposition-held areas of Syria, his comments were received poorly. Protesters took to the streets in opposition-held Idlib, northwestern Syria. Kavasulu delivered a speech yesterday saying we should reconcile with the killers after all these sacrifices we made, to reconcile with the murderers and criminals. Is this equation correct in your opinion? No, we will not reconcile. We will not reconcile. Following the protests, the Turkish foreign minister doubled down on his comments at a press conference in Ankara on August 17th. We have made a very important contribution to this reconciliation. Why? Because the opposition trusts us, they trust Turkey. We have never let them down. However, we have always stated and continue to stress that reconciliation is essential for permanent stability and peace in Syria. Three days later, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan went further when he said that Turkey was no longer seeking to remove Assad from power. While Turkey has not officially reconciled with the government in Damascus, these developments have strongly implied that it is the path that Turkey has chosen. But why? Joseph Dahir again. I think there are two main reasons. Obviously, the first one is internal dynamics within Turkey. Seeing the deepening of the economic crisis, high level of inflation, higher levels of unemployment... And Erdogan priority is the next uh, elections for the coming year in 2023. And two main topics are on the table. 
especially the economy, but also the issue of Syrian refugees. And you can add an additional one that comes back any kind of crisis in Turkey is the Kurdish national question. And on all these topics, obviously the Syrian uprising is connected partially. The opposition in Turkey, except HDP, the People's Party, has been blaming the economic crisis largely not only on Erdogan's economic policies, but on Syrian refugees as the source of all problems, source of all evils, etc. The UN's main refugee agency, the UNHCR, has reported that there are about 3.6 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. At the start of the conflict, the refugees coming from Syria were welcomed, or at least tolerated, by much of the Turkish population. Over time, attitudes have shifted, and there is now wide support for policies that would see Syrian refugees return. An August 2021 poll by Turkish polling company Metropol reported that 82% of voters want to see refugees return. The rise in popularity for the return of refugees has accompanied the dramatic fall of the Turkish economy. In August of this year, inflation had risen to 80.2%, the highest rate of inflation since September 1998. Turkey's movement towards Syria can be explained through the lens of internal political dynamics and efforts by Erdogan and his ruling party to secure electoral victory at the 2023 election. The second is obviously the development of the Syrian uprising, except in the first few years of the Syrian uprising, where Turkey more generally wanted you know, to expand its influence, not only in Syria, but other countries throughout the region through its support to the to Islamic fundamentalist forces like the Muslim Brotherhood, like we've seen in Egypt, Tunis, etc. In Syria, they, they banked on the, as well on this section of the opposition, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is still heading the main official uh, branches of the, the opposition, recognized by the international community, the Syrian National Council, the Syrian National Coalition, etc. This has failed. And after 2013, very clearly, Turkish main objective was to prevent any kind of uh, expansion you know, of the PYD, which is a sister party of the PKK, considered as a terrorist organization by Turkey. And since then, Turkey's main objective has not been the, the fall of Bashar Assad, but to contain the perceived threat of the PYD and to try to prevent you know, any extension of PYD activities on its borders with, with Syria. And this is how you understand the full military invasion, intervention, occupation of Syrian lands. At this point, it would probably help to have a quick refresher course about what's happening in Syria, and more specifically, what's happening in northern Syria. Northeastern Syria is currently held by Kurdish groups. Their main political wing is the Syrian Democratic Council, and their main military force is the Syrian Democratic Forces. You may remember them from their fight against the Islamic State, in which they were successful. The area controlled by the Kurds is often known as the Autonomous Administrative Area. US forces are also present in the area, although small in number. Turkey has long accused the Kurds in Syria of being affiliated with the Turkish PKK, another Kurdish group, which the Turkish state has long been engaged against both politically and militarily. In northwestern Syria, mainly in the province of Idlib, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham rules the roost. An offshoot of al-Qaeda, these Islamic fundamentalists have secured themselves in the province 
but are subject to regular bombardments by Russian and Syrian planes and on the ground are fairly pinned down by a de-escalation zone, which is jointly patrolled by Turkish and Russian forces. In central northern Syria, mainly across the northern parts of Aleppo province and Raqqa province, the Syrian National Army maintained control. These are the last remaining parts of what could be considered the official opposition against Assad, but are in truth under the control of Turkey and pose no real threat to the survival of the Assad regime. The problem as soon as you put your destiny in foreign hands and in foreign states that have their own interests, you act like proxies for them rather than any kind of strategies of liberation, for example, for the Syrian National Army, if they had at any point any strategy to overthrow the Assad regime, this has been long done. Their main actions have been in the past five, six years to contribute to Turkish uh, national interest, military interest in the north, and especially against the autonomous administrative areas and especially the Kurdish population. The partnership between the opposition's Syrian National Army and Turkey has now endured for so long that for the Syrian group, it's Turkey or bust. And again, you won't find any kind of other states supporting these groups. Turkey is basically the last actor supporting such groups. Even Western support don't go to the Syrian National Army because obviously they're guilty of numerous violations of human rights, whether against Arab population, Kurdish population, and other you know, ethnic population. And they're acting much more as bandits today. You have very often confrontation between groups of the Syrian National Army. In opposition, HTS, Tahrir al-Sham, the Salaf al-Jihadist group, is acting much more in a consolidated and organized way. So what will Turkey do with the opposition's Syrian National Army? And how will this fit in with their normalization and their ongoing fight against the Kurds? And most probably what Turkey will push for is to find a form of um, agreement for the Syrian National Army and the Syrian regime and to conjointly threaten the autonomous administration areas. Because they're saying you have the similar interest not to see uh, a divided Syria or a new uh, you know, Kurdistan, even though this is not the objective of the autonomous uh, administrative areas. But most probably they will be pushed to find a solution with the Syrian regime or pushed out, basically. If no solution is, uh, is found for them, they will be abandoned. Like what happened with other you know, Syrian opposition groups are dependent on foreign assistance. We've seen this in the South in 2018, you know, Jordan and the US basically pushing armed groups to find a form of agreement or a form of uh, you know, conciliation with the Damascus regime, even though these agreements are not at all being respected by the Damascus regime, which is assassinating, threatening, imprisoning former opposition uh, military members. Going forward, things don't look great for either the opposition Syrian National Army or the Kurds. And Turkey can carry on as they please, continue to support the opposition and use them in the fight against the Kurds, or drop them, knowing that the regime in Damascus is also seeking to put an end to the Kurds. While domestically, they can continue to send Syrian refugees into northern Syria, appeasing their base and aiding electoral efforts, while also replacing Kurdish families from those areas who have been forced to flee eastwards. Turkey and Hamas are the latest to make normalisation moves with the brutal Assad regime. But they are also part of a wider worrying trend in the region. In Jordan, King Abdullah II has also made overtures to Damascus. Egypt likewise. 
while both the UAE and Bahrain have now returned their embassies to Damascus. At the Arab League, talk of a Syrian return has been promoted by Algeria. Politicians will continue their talks and political interests will undoubtedly be served. But away from the backroom meetings and the ministers' discussions, a different form of normalisation is taking place. It's a normalisation that doesn't seek political gains, but rather it's an attempt to normalise a Syria that continues to be ruled over by a murderous dictator, brushing aside or completely ignoring the crimes of the past. Go online and head over to YouTube and search for Syria. Among the news reports and analysis videos, you'll also find a number of travel videos. There's Seven Days in Syria in 2022 from a channel called Yes Theory, or The Syria the Media Won't Show You by Bald and Bankrupt, or What It's Like to Be a Tourist in Damascus from Eva Zubek. Popular YouTuber Drew Binsky has a whole series of videos from his tour in Syria. These videos do a great job in highlighting everything that's fantastic about Syria. The food, the ancient history, the culture and the warm and welcoming people. These travel bloggers are primarily from Western countries and can only enter the country with the express permission of the Assad regime. And during their visits, they are accompanied by regime guides. But what's the thinking behind these videos? And why are these bloggers granted visas? He, he has a plan. The regime, it's not stupid. This is Ayman Abdel-Nur. Ayman works for the Syrian Christian Initiative for Rights and Dialogue. He has a lot of employees and he hired top experts from many countries. And as you noticed, the timing was the, the era preparing for the summer vacation. Number two, if you notice the countries uh, that they came from, Sweden, Germany, Australia, and UK, which has a huge Syrian refugee and community there before the revolution in 2011. The aim is to convince the Syrians who are there to come in a bigger number. That's the easy target and easy to sell because they have those memories, they have families, they have relatives, they have their own houses there. So he targeted the Syrian community there instead of coming, let's say one or two from the family to see their parents, their families, their cousins, no, to come in a group, to come with these bigger families, to there with, with sons, with their sisters, with their neighbors maybe who are citizens from those countries. After so many years of conflict, the Syrian regime is using these Western travel bloggers to lure Syrians from abroad, whether they be refugees or expats who settled abroad before the start of the conflict. They want them to come to Syria and spend money. These videos are a message to those communities. Come to Syria, everything's fine, and bring money. It's a nice idea... But these videos also continually fail to acknowledge that returning is not an option for many. For some, returning means risking forced conscription, arrest, imprisonment or even torture. That move was not ethical from those YouTubers 
and it made a lot of passion crisis for many of Syrians when they saw those foreigners walking near their houses that they cannot go and see it. When they go and sit and eat with those places, that good food they used to have every day, which they know in person, and they have good relation with them, with those sellers, with those shops, and now they cannot, just because they wrote certain article or in a meeting they criticized the regime, and that's not a country. That's a mafia that ruled that country and supported by those YouTubers who has no respect for human being and for the owners, the real owners of those houses and those places that they were moving and showing in their cameras. On the surface, these videos show everything great about Syria, while ignoring the large Assad elephant. So as you see in all the YouTube, they didn't uh, mention any word about the uh, Bashar al-Assad as a president of the country or anything that he's doing reform or trying to, to portray him as a good man. No, they didn't do that. They cannot because it's, 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 it's a fact now. It's a fact. It would be impossible to travel around Syria without seeing evidence of the war. And the war is acknowledged in these videos. One travel blogger, Drew Binsky, was taken to Aleppo. In his video, Syria is moving on, open brackets, bright future ahead, close brackets, he meets with people who have lost homes and businesses to the conflict. They speak of attacks by terrorist organisations. But neither Drew nor anyone he speaks to makes mention of the hundreds of barrel bombs that were indiscriminately dropped into civilian areas by the regime, or the targeting of hospitals and medical centres that was repeatedly witnessed in Aleppo. Drew is guided around the area by an organisation, SOS Christians of the East, who talk about the reconstruction work they are doing, but makes no mention that this far-right French organisation has been a long and loyal supporter of Bashar al-Assad and has even been accused of complicity in war crimes in Syria. They need to remember that when they are walking, especially in Damascus, under the roads, there are many cells that has uh, detainees illegally detained and they are tortured. They need to hear their voices. Whenever they go, there's a lot of mass graves under the ground, which they illegally killed by the Assad regime forces. The country they are visiting, half of it are either internally displaced or they immigrate and fled the country and they are living in tents under these heavy rains and this hot summer. They need to recognize that this is a murderer regime and they are helping him by giving him the hard currency he needs to buy more guns and more ammunition to continue the assault against his own people. The travel videos on YouTube are a tool for the regime. They normalize Assyria under the rule of Assad. They ignore the ongoing crimes and seek to sanitize a regime that has brutalized a population for decades. These videos serve to tell Syrians abroad that everything they love about their country remains, 
with no mention of the dangers that could be faced when they land. These efforts go hand in hand with the work of regional and international governments that are normalising political relations with the Assad regime. This normalisation will deal another blow to an opposition that already has no real chance of removing Assad from office. But it's not the only damage it will cause. Bringing the Assad regime back into the international fold and normalising his brutal rule in the country will have a severe impact on efforts for justice. It would deny those who have lost loved ones and suffered so much the chance to see the people who have committed atrocities pay for their crimes. Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Arab Voice. It was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Paul McLaughlin and Louis Faour. Our theme music was by Omar El-Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.